Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Tonight, before Simon brings the message, we're going to read the word that he's going to be preaching from, and that's Acts 19, verses 1 to 20. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reassuring, oh, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that, they, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the traveling Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of, the, of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Thanks, Maggie. Uh, do keep that part of God's word open if you would. Uh, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 20. This is uh, the, the last of uh, our sort of installments in this part of our exploration of the book of Acts. Um, we started a series for the last year. Um, we've, uh, we've sort of been plowing through this next little section. And I don't know if you noticed, uh, as Maggie rounded out that reading, chapter 19, verse 20, there's like this summary statement that comes that Luke drops in at various points to kind of round out a kind of a period of activity of the Holy Spirit in Jesus. And uh, so we're going to kind of stop at that point, 1920 tonight, and pick it up again February 2020, unless the Lord returns in the meantime. Um, he may well do that. Um, but anyway, that's the plan, um, should the Lord tarry. Um, 
We are, um, yeah, it's wonderful. We're, we're in the book of Acts. We're thinking about the, how, how the good news of, of Jesus kind of goes out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And I wonder, just to get us going tonight, have you, have you had any good news lately? Have you, you know, any good news that you've gone, wow, that was just, that was good? Um, it made me think, right, I was, um, I was playing with Sebastian many months ago. He's our sort of middle fella. And uh, he was desperate to go to the swimming pool, the North Adelaide Aquatic Centre. And for days, I'd kept saying, no, Sebastian, we're not going, we're not going. And he was like, you could tell him, he's just going, man, I just really want to go, I just want to swim, what's the big deal, Dad? And uh, he's asking and asking and asking. And then one day, like it was like on day four, after he's really persistent, he, um, he said, Dad, can we go to the Aquatic Centre today? And I said, yes. And the, the minute he just kid, he goes, that is such good news. And he started running around the house going, good news, good news, we're going to the pool. I don't know, have, you may not think that going to the aquatic centre is that good a news, but have you had any good news lately? And what I want you to do is just share it with the person next to you. Um, what's some good news you've had? Um, maybe in your own life, maybe you've heard it, um, and you just want to share it briefly with the person next to you. Just try that for a, you know, a minute or so, and then we'll get back into it. What good news have you received lately? Go for it. All right, I'll ask you to stop sharing your good news. Clearly, my other son hasn't received some good news. There you go. Um, I hope you had something to share, and and please continue to do that as we uh, eat some dinner tonight together. yeah, just next door. Good news. Um, I've, been at a, uh, I've been at a conference the last few days in Melbourne, and uh, I've, I've had a really encouraging experience. And I just thought um, some good news that I wanted to share out of that conference is, um, it's kind of obvious, but really great. Um, and and the, the good news I wanted to share with you tonight, just as we get going, is God is good. Um, that's what I wanted to share with you tonight. God is he's really good, and he's ridiculously kind. Um, my, my time at the conference, there, you know, there's much, you know, you go to good conferences or good get-togethers with Christian people, and there's good music, there's good teaching, and that sort of stuff. But the overwhelming thing that keeps coming out of this conference over and over and over again is God is good. Um, you know, He's good in the way that He pursues us with His love. He's good because He He heals our wounds. He's good because He He's still at work saving sinners right across the globe. He's kind because. You know, we turned our back on him, and yet in his love, he gave us his son. And even though, I don't know about you, but I continue to kind of cheat on God and walk away from God each and every day, and yet he is still good, yeah? He still pursues us with his love. He keeps coming for us. He keeps showering us with blessing upon blessing upon blessing, none of which we deserve, but he does it because he's a good, good father. That is good news, yeah? Amen? Do you agree? He's good. He pursues us. He's kind. The second thing, that, the second big good news that I came across was I got to meet this fella. He's on the screen. This is Mark Clark, Pastor Mark Clark. He was giving some talks at this conference. Um, the good news isn't so much about him, um, although he's a great guy um, and uh, he's a man who um, loves the Lord, got saved in quite a dramatic way while sort of high on marijuana um, many years ago um, and uh, sort of in the fog and haze of all that, met Jesus and has gone on under God so to, just to grow and to be a, a really powerful communicator of God's word. But about 16 years ago, uh, Mark Clark and about 15 other people sat down in a lounge room in Canada, in Vancouver, uh, and they decided, I think we're going to plant a church. 
Um, now, I don't know if you know about Canada. I've been to Canada. It's a beautiful country. It's actually one of the most progressive, kind of liberal countries in the world, um, where it's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to proclaim the good news of Jesus. But about 16 years ago, this group of people got together and said, let's plant a church in Vancouver to reach Vancouverites, I don't know what they're called, um, with the good news of Jesus. And so they did that, right? Um, 16 years later, they've now planted churches in six big cities across Canada. Um, Over 100 people a year are getting baptised into the faith through the work that they're doing just at most of the locations. The church has gone from 16 in a small family room to now thousands of people following Jesus right across Canada. And their impact is just, it's extraordinary under God. That's good news, yeah? You know, 16 people, thousands more have joined. And it just kind of makes me think a bit about the book of Acts, right? This, this book we've been tracking through, this movement of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and how ordinary men and women have been captured by the grace of God and then empowered by the Spirit to be sent out and to just keep proclaiming that message over and over and over again. You know, the, the church in Vancouver, Village Church, part of the movement, Church here in North Adelaide, we're part of this movement where God has empowered ordinary men and women, just like he did back in Jerusalem, ordinary men and women to proclaim this extraordinary message that God is good, he is kind, he pursues sinners with his grace and his love and his mercy. It's a wonderful story. It all began back then, and God is still at work today saving people here in Australia, in Vancouver, right across the globe. It's extraordinary. But the reality is, right, as much as there's great action happening in Vancouver and all sorts is going on, there are still so many people, right, who are desperately in need of finding Jesus, repenting, trusting in the finished work of Jesus and finding life and eternal life in him. There's so many people, so many people we know personally, so many people in our city, so many people in the world. But the gospel is still powerful. God is still kind. The Holy Spirit is still at work. And, you know, yes, we see um, people getting saved in the book of Acts, but as, we, as we've been tracking through, I don't know if you've been here for the whole time, I think transit, are we up to 30 now? Is this the 30th installment? There you go. Um, if you've been, who's been here for all 30? I haven't. Hey, Tranes, wow, check it out. There you go. Um, you know, you'll notice people, the gospel's proclaimed by ordinary men and women in the power of the Spirit, and people's lives are getting changed. But there's been obstacles. There's been confrontation as we've gone through. It hasn't just been, you know, just open the door and the gospel just goes out and it's just like, you know, walking down the path smelling the roses. There's been obstacles. There's been challenges. Challenges from outside of the group of Christians. Challenges that have resulted from the sin of the Christians in this forming church. Opposition from religious leaders. Opposition from just people in the street. But nevertheless, the gospel has been advancing, crashing through barriers. It's been the case all the way through the book of Acts. And I've just got on the screen here, you know, just sort of some of those obstacles and confrontations. And the key ones I just want to highlight, so chapter 6, there's this, you know, this church is growing and there's people from different backgrounds all coming into this church and there's kind of social clash and ethnic clashes and there's this, you know, social needs arising and the word of God is almost being squeezed out and, and yet the gospel overcomes that challenge. Chapter 6. And then, you know, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is stoned to death for proclaiming the good news. And you think, whoa, that's going to have to surely kind of put a full stop on this movement. 
He'd only cease, like, works to kind of propel the gospel further and further and further. Chapter 15, um, there's people from the Jewish nation getting saved. There's Gentiles, people from the nations getting saved. And they're trying to work out, is everyone saved on the same basis by grace and through faith alone? And so they have this big meeting in Jerusalem. They work out, yes, Jews and Gentiles, everyone's saved by faith in Jesus Christ. They sort that out. The gospel keeps going. And then tonight... Come to Acts chapter 19, we're in Ephesus, and another couple of obstacles kind of appear. The two obstacles are incomplete Christianity and false spirituality. They're the two things that come up against the gospel. And as we think about these two things tonight, I think we're going to see some real kind of contemporary connection, like how we actually see this in our kind of lives, our friends and families and our nation Today, you know, for example, some like the disciples of John, if you're listening to the text as it was read out, you know, they kind of say, we're following John the Baptist, and, well, they seem to have like an incomplete Christianity, a, sort of a few gaps in their understanding and experience that will get sort of sorted out. And there's many people, right, in our city today who have gaps in their understanding and experience of Christianity. The second thing, chapter 19, verses 8 through to 20, um, we confront false spirituality, People who are sort of harnessing or seeking to harness spiritual power and forces for their own good and to fulfill their own needs. They're looking for what they can get out in the Christian sense of Jesus. And I think you can sort of, we'll find, we'll see that pretty clearly and evidently tonight. So we're going to look at each of these two things in turn. The gospel confronting incomplete faith. The gospel confronting incomplete uh, sort of false spirituality. And each time we're going to see through this text this beautiful truth about Jesus kind of arise out of it. And so if you turn to the first one, the gospel confronts incomplete faith. The thing we learn about Jesus is that Jesus brings new life, brings new life. Have a look at me, chapter 19 and verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus, that's, that's modern-day Turkey, right? That's where we are, where he found some disciples. Comes into Ephesus again, he bumps into some people who are claiming to be disciples. Now, it seems they're claiming to follow Jesus. But actually, as we read on, they're actually followers of John the Baptist. If, you, if you're a Bible reader, if you've been around church for all, you probably recognise that guy. Um, Paul senses very early on, like in the conversation, that something isn't quite right with these disciples. So verse 2, Paul asks this question. So guys, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They replied, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now I find that if you pause there for a minute, you go, really? You've not heard of the Holy Spirit? Like, now, I don't think they actually mean we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. Because if they've been hanging around John, if they're disciples of John the Baptist, John the Baptist talked a fair bit about the Holy Spirit. Um, John the Baptist was a Jew. Um, he probably was pretty well schooled in the Old Testament. And as you read the Old Testament, there's actually, you kind of meet the Holy Spirit. So we, we talk here at Holy, uh, not, um, the Holy, not the Holy Spirit, but here at uh, City Light Church, North Adelaide, we talk, we follow the living God, three persons, one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The scriptures speak of God, the Holy Spirit, throughout the Old Testament. Not all the time, but there's points at which it's quite clear. They'd almost, like, without doubt, heard of the Holy Spirit. 
John the Baptist spoke a lot about it. Um, so, you know, John would say, you know, I'm not the one you should be focusing on, guys. All I can do is baptise with water. John was John the Baptist. He would baptise people in the Jordan. I can make you wet, like we're going to make um, Lockie wet next week in the car park when we baptise him. Um, but the one coming after me, the one whom I'm pointing to, well, he can baptise you with the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So they knew there was a Holy Spirit. It just seems that they hadn't realised or heard that the Holy Spirit had come in a new and dramatic way. The new age that John was pointing to had actually come, but I don't know, it was like they were like asleep at the wheel. I don't know. That's why I think, what I think they mean when they say we haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. Is that happening now? Is he really here? It seemed like they'd taken on board John's message. They'd been baptised probably with John's baptism. But they hadn't kind of like, like fully come to know Jesus yet. Um, I, uh, when I was at this conference uh, the other day, it was on was it Thursday night, first session, pumped, really excited, great to be there, hundreds of people sitting there. And uh, you'd think I'd be so excited I wouldn't be looking at my phone. Right? Because no one looks at their phone when they're at church, do they? Like we know, or we're at a conference, like it's focus, beeline. And um, there I am on my phone, and, uh, and then I'm, I'm singing, and then I'm listening to these talks, and I've got my phone kind of hanging here a little bit so no one else can really see what I'm doing. And, um, and then I see this thing flash up on my screen. It was a message um, from a friend of mine. And the message was oh, Simon, um, I've had an accident on my bike, um, I've broken my shoulder and my elbow. Um, I'm going into hospital um, tomorrow to have it operated on. Um, I'm really anxious. I'm really scared. I, I'm, you know, I don't really like operations. I don't like anaesthetics. Can you pray for me? Can you pray for a good outcome? Can you pray all this stuff? I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely, you know, in my mind. And then um, I sort of, I'm, I type this message, you know, I'm meant to be listening to a message, but I'm typing this message thinking about, yeah, absolutely, would love to pray for you, etc. You know, I'm sure it's going to go well. I'm, you know, when I was about, you know, 10 years ago, I had my bike accident, I smashed my shoulder into 10 pieces, it's all been put back together, it's fine, it's never worked better in my life, you're going to be fine, the surgeon's going to be awesome, the anaesthetic will be fun, um, you know, and then I'm, I'm thinking, scriptures, scriptures, what can I call in, I, I can't remember the psalm, there's a psalm that basically goes, you know, when you're anxious, the joy of the Lord will be your comfort, I love that one, and I'm thinking Philippians 4, right, Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in all things, pray, supplicate, thanksgiving, you know, the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and in the class, Jesus, man, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm awesome, what a great pastor I am, you know, like scripture and care and love, bam, send. She's like, oh, thanks, this is great, love it. And then I wrote, please let me know how the surgery goes. So, you know, I'm not that good a pastor, I didn't really think much about that for the rest of the night, got this message the next day, and this was the message, didn't get operated on. And I'm like, Really? She said, yeah, I went to the hospital, I got in my hospital gown, they put me to sleep, I woke up, nothing had happened. I was all prepared for the surgery, I was ready to be operated on, the surgeon got called away to another case, couldn't do it. This is a bit like these disciples, right, of John. They've had all the preparatory work done, they've thought about the scriptures, they've followed John, John was saying, no, don't follow me, follow Jesus, but they kind of hadn't been operated on yet, they hadn't received the healing. And that was the case for these disciples of John. And it's not only that they're like unspiritual Christians, I would say they're probably not quite Christians yet. 
They haven't actually come to Jesus. Now, some people say that it's possible to be a Christian without receiving the Holy Spirit. In other words, to be Christian but not fully Christian. It's not true. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit's already at work bringing you to Jesus. And then when you get saved, it's the Holy Spirit that melts your heart to love Jesus. And then it's the Holy Spirit that unites you to Jesus and all that he has done and has done and will do. They they go together. When I got saved when I was 21, um, I was on fire for the Lord for like for the first 10 weeks. I was just lapping up anything Christian, right? Anything that smelled like Christian. I was at church 24-7. I loved it. And I was like telling everything that moved about Jesus. And then the guy that led me to Christ, I caught up with him, right? And he, he invited me to his church. I went to his church. And I sat down for lunch with some of his friends. And someone said, hey, Simon, now that you've come to know Jesus, do you speak in tongues? And I was like, no. And I was like, they're like well, so you haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. And I was like, um, well, I thought I had. It kind of, you know, so I went from on fire to being a little bit confused. And so what I did was I got the Bible out and I started reading through the New Testament, trying to kind of work out what's the relationship between getting saved and the Holy Spirit. And as I read through, the more and more I realized that the New Testament doesn't know a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Peter, preaching Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when the risen Lord Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit on all followers, the people around Peter as as he's speaking and this is happening are asking, what's going on, Peter? Like, what's happening? People are speaking in tongues. People are, you know, there's flames and wind and that sort of stuff. When Peter... When Peter responds, he doesn't preach a sermon about the Holy Spirit. What does he do? He preaches a sermon about Jesus. He preaches about Jesus. You want to know what's going on around here in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost? It's all about Jesus. Jesus, you know, he says to the crowd, you know, the one you crucified the one you crucified but has been raised from the dead and is now seated at God's right hand on high. That's the one, enthroned as the king of all the world. He is Lord and he, sitting on his throne, has now poured out the Holy Spirit on all people. That's what's going on, says Peter. It's all about Jesus. And the crowd before Peter in Acts chapter 2, they're shocked and horrified. They're like, we killed him? We killed Jesus? We killed God? The one we were crying for his blood, crucify him, crucify him, just you know, weeks earlier, was actually the Christ. They'd crucified God. They'd killed their maker. And it's hardly surprising that we read this in Acts chapter 2. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to them, and he said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do to be saved? Peter said these words, repent. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two gifts. When you come to know Jesus, you receive the forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They come as a package deal when you come to know the person and work of the Lord Jesus and you entrust yourself to him. These men, as I said before, they're probably not unspiritual Christians, they're probably not Christians at all. And notice how Paul instructs them about true Christianity. His little sermon, it's not about the Spirit. Verse 4, after they'd said they'd received John's baptism, verse 4, Paul said, 
John baptised with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. I take it Paul then just spoke to them about Jesus, the one whom John pointed to, about his impeccable life, about the fact that he died the death that they deserved, that we deserved, that he was utterly sinless and perfect. He was righteous and that he laid his life down for the unrighteous, just like you and me. That he's paid the penalty in full, in his body, in his person on the cross, and yet he didn't stay dead, Paul would say. He's risen to new life. And because he's alive, the wonderful promise is that every single person who comes to Jesus has now within them the promised Holy Spirit, making them more like Jesus, emboldening them to proclaim the good news of Jesus. They'd been prepared for Jesus, they just hadn't come to Jesus. And I think there are many like this in our country, in our city, perhaps even here tonight. A lot of you guys are young, right? Maybe you're off the hook, you know, because like the gospel's just kind of drifted away a bit and good Bible study, that's you know, not so much around. There's an ever-increasing proportion of people, like younger people in Adelaide, I think, who just have no idea at all about the person and work of Jesus. But there are many in our city who've, I don't know, been to a churchy school, been to chapel once, twice, five times a week. You know, perhaps at some stage were at Sunday school and went to church a little bit. But what has happened is they've got a little bit of Christianity, but not a complete Christianity. It's incomplete. And maybe for some of us, right, that Christianity boiled down, it's essentially just like a moral code, an ethical framework. Just be good. But all those moral beliefs, right, they're just moral beliefs. They don't actually come or arise from the person of the Lord Jesus. He's not at the centre. Maybe more uh, for some people, you know, Christianity is boiled down to just kind of turning up, going through some rituals, going to church, some religious expectations. But none of those things are driven by a real love for the Lord Jesus Christ and him at the centre. It's true for me. I kind of grew up in the church. I went to church every week. I put on my Sunday best because I was told to. I used to be an altar boy in the Roman Catholic Church. Can you imagine me? Like, you know, frock. Thing tied around my waist, waving some incense around. That was me. Went along with my parents. Went to Sunday. Oh, I was a terrible Sunday school kid, by the way. That's probably why they made me an altar boy, I reckon. Like, you know, get him out of here. Like, get him doing something different. But anyway, that was me. But as I went through some of these things, right, like the, the whole thing was just, it left me a bit cold. Because the life of Jesus was not at the center of it. It was just going through the motions. It was just a place to go on Sunday. It was only when I realised by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit that it was all about Jesus that I put my trust in him and, and the coldness went to warmth and a friendship with God. Perhaps there's someone here tonight, you know, and, and you're here and you're thinking, well, that's me. For me, Christianity is, uh, my Christianity is a bit incomplete. I know a lot about Jesus, I think. I know a little bit about the Bible, but I've never realised that Jesus is right at the heart of it. Maybe that's you. I want to plead with you tonight. Do ask the person you've come with. Do ask me. I'd love to to tell you about how Jesus is at the centre of all and pray with you and maybe lead you to a love of the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. But for many of us, right, we may say, well, I know that in theory. I've come to put my trust in Jesus at some stage, 
But too often, I think we have to admit, we have to admit, at least in our experience, oh, I'm living out an incomplete Christianity. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, this guy on the screen, um, he was a, a great American evangelist and apologist. Um, he'd been a Christian uh, for a long time. He'd been in Christian vocational ministry for a long time as well. When he hit 40, he had like a crisis of faith. Um, he, he felt like his Christianity had become kind of unreal somehow, that he knew all this stuff, but in his heart of hearts, it just didn't kind of mean anything to him. It wasn't alive. You know, he asked himself time and time again, is this really true? The basics of the gospel. Is it really true that Jesus died for my sin? Is it really true that he's alive and well today? Is it really true that he loves me? His wife, Edith, actually was really worried about him, thinking that he might just like toss it all in. And uh, they were on mission working in Europe at the time. And she thought, well, what is this going to do to our kind of whole way of doing life? He'd walk through the Alps where they were in Europe um, kind of thinking and reading and praying about what the, actual, the Bible actually taught. Um, if it was really wet, he'd pace up and down the loft in the barn where they were, kind of thinking about the same sort of stuff, praying and reading and thinking, praying and reading and thinking. And gradually he said this, the sun came out and the song returned. After a long time, the sun came out and the song returned. He realised that what he had was an incomplete Christianity. He trusted in Jesus but wasn't really living in the light of what that really was in the here and now. But God graciously answered his prayers and, and Jesus kind of went back at the centre of Francis Schaeffer's life, brought him back. He realised that what the New Testament offers is not just simply new birth like 40 years ago. You know, you've got to be born again but new life day by day. You know that idea at the beginning that day by day by day, God is pursuing his people. Day by day by day, God is loving his people. Day after day after day, he's kind. He's showering us with blessing upon blessing upon blessing, growing us into a more and more deeper, intimate relationship with our loving, gracious, heavenly Father. He realised that. Now here's the gospel, right? Confronting incomplete Christianity brings new birth. It brings real life, day after day. Ongoing transformation. It's a challenge for us today. And secondly, the gospel confronts false spirituality. And here the thing we learn about Jesus, verses 8 through 20, is that Jesus demands repentance. He demands that we turn back to him. That's what he demands. Verses 8 to 20, he demands full allegiance. So Paul starts preaching in the synagogue. That's what he does. That's his normal kind of mode of operation. Um, he goes there. He preaches. As often happens, heaps of people reject him. And so he moves to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. It's like a school. It's like a public lecture theatre. Um, it's right in the heart of the city, and, and which is right at the heart of this particular region of the world. And as a result, like after his preaching, after his lecturing, day after day, explaining the true Christian faith, persuading people to follow Jesus, many people hear the gospel, turn to the gospel, and knowledge of Jesus then spreads throughout the region. And God authenticated his message through miracles. Have a look at verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through the Apostle Paul. God did extraordinary things, miracles, through Paul. Now, any miracle, by definition, is extraordinary, yeah? You would agree. Um, they are out of the ordinary. 
These were like, I don't know, extraordinary, extraordinary miracles that Paul was doing. Um, you know, you might know, if you're a Bible reader, that miracles come up all the way through the Scriptures, from Genesis through to Revelation. Um, and it usually is accompanied when God is kind of manifesting or revealing himself in particular ways. So Moses and uh, the giving of the law, miracles are happening around that as God reveals who he is and his heart and his law, how his people should live. Uh, the beginning of the Old Testament prophetic era, we see miracles happening around Elisha and Elijah, amazing things. Jesus, right? God himself turns up on planet Earth and there's miracles happen everywhere. God in the flesh reveals himself, manifestation of God. We see miracles taking place. And then you'll see, like in the book of Acts, as the apostles, as God's, as Jesus' representatives, preach and proclaim the good news, the apostles' words are accompanied often with miracles to authenticate their message. But even by the measure of the day, the miracles that Paul kind of does are kind of extraordinary, extraordinary miracles. So we read about um, some of these goings on. They're kind of strange, right? Um, So Paul's a tent maker, working hard, and he probably has a band, like a band around his head or probably like a rag tied around to catch the sweat. takes that off and miracles are happening through his sweat band. Wouldn't that be amazing? You know, you get off the squash court, a bit sweaty and disgusting, and whoa, look at this, you know. Um, you know, he's wearing aprons as he's doing other work, and they even be, they're, they're taken by people. People use them to pray for the sick, and the, the, the object representing Paul, and people are miraculously healed. It's extraordinary. Just like when Jesus was performing, you know, miraculous deeds, people here in Ephesus noticed what was going on. They saw these incredible things happening, and so they... They were interested. They did recognise that Paul was only a human agent, that this power actually came from the risen Lord Jesus, but they wanted to tap into that power. So they used Jesus' name quite literally to kind of conjure with. So verse 13, um, Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, By the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, I command you, come out. Now, perhaps you're thinking right now, this is a bit weird. This is odd. Um, All this talk about evil spirits and demons, doesn't that belong to like medieval days? I don't know, Braveheart riding in, you know, or Harry Potter, you know, or, or Tolkien. I don't know. Surely we're not meant to be taking this stuff seriously evil spirits and demons and miracles and things like that. We are to take this really seriously. Do not take this lightly. The Bible is very clear, brothers and sisters. There is a God and there is a devil. There are angels and there are demons. And these are not things to play with. Not just things to to laugh at or to be entertained by. Ages ago, I was down in Port Elliot. And you know where the train line goes through Port Elliot on the Strand? There's a, um, there's a sign of notice board about community events sort of on that sign. And I walked past it one day when I was down there. And on that sign, they were advertising what's, you know, what's up for entertainment down in Port Elliot. You can't imagine much is going on, right? You know, just the beach and fish and chips. But um, in Port Elliot that day, there was this. There was a singer, there was a comedian, and there was a medium. That was the entertainment on offer at Port Elliot. Three different kinds of entertainment, a singer, a comedian, and a medium. Mediums, evil spirits, and demons 
They're not entertainment. Serious stuff. When I was at school, year 11 and 12, there were friends of mine who got into Ouija boards. They just thought it was a bit of fun. But serious, you know, people are drawn to these things because there's this sense in them there's something on offer for them. I don't know, a buzz, some light entertainment, some kind of interesting experience, but actually they're, they don't give us anything. In the end, the devil is behind these things and the devil, he's into taking away stuff, right? And sometimes he actually takes whole lives away for those who are completely under his grip. Here in Ephesus, right, there's these sons of Sceva, and they're overpowered by evil spirits. It's a very, very vivid illustration here in Acts chapter 19 of what happens when the, the devil takes grip and hold of people. So verse 15, The evil spirit said to the sons of Sceva in reply, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. There's the power of evil. To so strip people of, of just complete exposure, to expose this empty idolatry that these people were pursuing. And the end of that idolatry is not joy and happiness, it's, it's destruction. And we human beings on our own have no defence against it. Maybe you're here tonight and you recognise perhaps in your own life some of the power of evil in that life of yours. You sense that in some way you're being a bit taken over by it, perhaps you're here tonight. Maybe you're haunted a bit by past dabbles with the occult. Things in your life today perhaps that you know are evil, they don't belong in you and you just can't shake them. Maybe that's you. I would plead with you tonight, have a word with me. I'd love to speak with you and pray for you and pray with you. That you'd experience the, the life and the freedom that comes only through Jesus. Because what we can't do, Jesus absolutely can do. Do you know that? If there's evil in your life, what we can't get rid of, Jesus can absolutely get rid of for you. There's a broader warning here, I reckon, not just for those who have an interest in the occult or a former interest in the occult, but for any of us who maybe have a false spirituality that somehow seeks to use Jesus. I think this is a temptation, actually, for all of us to kind of use Jesus for our own gain. Maybe not a charm to cast out demons, but still very much to kind of for our own purposes and needs. I think that's the attraction of the prosperity gospel, not to boil it down too simply, but that's the, that's the attraction of the prosperity gospel. Those who would say, come to Jesus and, and he'll make you healthy, he'll make you wealthy, he'll make you smart, he'll give you everything that you really need in this life. Come to Jesus and he'll give you all those things, health, wealth. It's alive and well in this country. We think often that's what's happening in Africa or that's what's happening in India. It's happening in Australia. But perhaps more popular here in our country, in our context, is the therapeutic gospel. It's like the equivalent of the Christian self-help kind of thing. Um, you know, do you want to feel good about yourself? Wrestling with an identity issue? Um, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He'll give you self-fulfillment that you long for, that sense of worth, that sense of self-esteem. He'll make you feel good. And you know what? 
There's some truth in it, yeah? yeah there's some truth in it. You know, he, I mean, when you come to know Jesus, when you realize I'm just a bankrupt sinner, I've got nothing to offer, and yet in Jesus I'm forgiven, I'm welcomed into his family, into an unshakable truth, when you're welcome, when you realize that despite all my flaws and foibles and flab or pimples, I don't know, I'm looking around, but you know, like whatever you are, like you get welcomed into his family and you're accepted, not on the basis of who you are or how you look, you're welcomed in based on the person and work of Jesus. That's good for you, right? We long to be accepted as human beings. We long for people outside of ourselves to say, yeah, I like you, you're in. And God, our creator, despite all of our sin, he accepts us, the one whom we all will give an account to. He says, welcome, I love you, despite all your flaws and foibles. It does make us feel good. But the danger is, right, we, we can come to Jesus thinking, I just want to get out of him what I need. That's, that's a corrupt, false spirituality. We're not to think of Jesus like a genie in a bottle. I went and saw Aladdin. Anyone go and see Aladdin when I was on here? I went saw a, yeah, I went and saw Aladdin, and you know, you know the story... Genie, you know, he finds this bottle, rubs it, the genie pops up, hello, you know, how can I serve you today? What is your wish? I'll give you three wishes. I want a never-ending packet of Tim Tams. Great, you know, I don't know. As if we can just pull Jesus off the shelf, rub the bottle and say, Jesus, I want a better job. Okay, great, there you go. Put him back on the shelf, better job. Never lasts, right? So you go back, another, another better job. Like, we often treat Jesus like that. As if Jesus does what we command. That's not true Christianity. It's false spirituality. Jesus is not a servant to be used. He's our loving master who we worship and adore and obey and we serve. Because he's worthy of all those things. And we read in this passage that Jesus actually doesn't, we don't come to Jesus and make demands of him. He makes demands of us and he demands that every single human being, you and I, we repent. That we turn back from those idolatrous ways and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He demands total allegiance. Check it out, verse 17. When this became known, this, this dramatic event, to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck. They were seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. All these events had happened, this incredible miracle, this, this incredible kind of evil presented itself. When this became known to all the residents, people were seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. I mean, do we ever fear Jesus? Do you ever fear Jesus? Do you ever stop and just go, wow, I'm awestruck by Jesus? When was the last time you were just like, awestruck, overwhelmed with his beauty, his love, his power, his grace, his mercy. We're to fear Jesus. Not in that, oh my gosh, he's going to smote me if I do something wrong, but just because he's, we ought to be just in awe of him and worship him and adore him and serve him and obey him. And having come to know Jesus, 
who's forgiven our sins, past, present and future, if you've trusted in him. We are saved by grace, but as God's people, we're to take sin seriously. When you come into contact with Jesus, sin, we're going to take sin really seriously. Our rejection of God. Because Jesus is the holy God who, who hates sin. And these ordinary people in Ephesus, having come to fear Jesus, take their sin really seriously. Check it out, verse 18. Many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. When the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. Now, I'm not very good at maths. I've admitted that before publicly here. I will admit it again. I'm not really good at maths, but a silver coin uh, was the equivalent of a day's wage, right? And I did some numbers, went to the ABS website, punched it in, worked out what's the average wage for an Australian from the last census. Works out to be 50,000 silver coins in today's language is $16 million. I don't have, I've got some books, they're not worth that much, but that's, they come to know Jesus, they recognise how bankrupt they are, that their practices from former life were just unhelpful, dangerous, and not in line with how God wanted them to be. They'd come to faith in Jesus, and as a sign of their repentance, and just how costly that repentance was, they burned $16 million. Now, I'm not saying go out and burn your books, right? But that's, that's, that's significant. They repented. And as a, a sign of their repentance, as a kind of public declaration of their turning to the one true God through faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ, and as a testimony to the power and the beauty and the truth and the relevance of Jesus, they burned these books. They took sin seriously. And if I come to Jesus, if we come to Jesus and it's all about what can I get out of him, we're not going to take our sin seriously. We're just going to want to take from him. But if I see him as he is, a good, loving, kind, lay my life down for your sin and the sin of the whole world, Lord, and that he's died so that I will be with him forever in a place where sin does not exist, then I'll take my sin seriously today. Throwing myself time and time again on the person and work of Jesus. I think sometimes, as Christians, from my experiences working in the church for about eight years, we, we love grace, but sometimes we don't take sin seriously enough. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer um, coined this idea of cheap grace, like where we just sort of take the grace of God but sort of don't pay the price personally. He writes this. Cheap grace, this is in his book Life Together, great book. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is discipleship, is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. I think he could say, right, there is no grace without Jesus Christ. We need him. And so when they met Jesus, they confessed their sins. They threw themselves on the Lord Jesus. 
They turned to follow him, to track with him. And I wonder tonight as we close, is there anything for you in your life, in your heart, that you need to kind of radically remove? Anything that you need to, to come before the Lord God tonight and, and confess, confident that he's, he loves you, he pursues you, he's in the business of healing you, he's in the business of making you more like Jesus. But is there something tonight, I don't know, you just need to lay before the cross afresh, turn your back on, and fix your gaze afresh on the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was at this conference over the last few days, on Thursday, on Friday night, um, I was I was undone as the word of God was preached, as we sang together as God's people. There's so much in my heart that is not yet aligned to the will of God and how God wants me to live as his son. Um, I could go on all night, actually, and just go through the whole list of the things that I've been sort of exposed. But, I mean, one of the things that I'm, I'm, I want to confess tonight and, and is that I... I I, I way too often live for the praise of people. Um, I, I live for that. And you know, I, I want to live for the praise of one, the Lord God. What is it for you? Tonight will be a great night to come before the Lord God and confess our sin. There's a prayer on the screen that I thought we could pray together. It's a prayer of confession as we lead into the Lord's Supper tonight. Uh, just coming before God as God's people because the basis of us coming together as God's people is the forgiveness of sins. And I want to encourage us tonight. I'm going to give you a moment just in the quiet of your own heart to come before God and confess those things that perhaps you need to bring before him, the things you've done which you ought not to have done, the things you've said that you ought not to have said, the things you should have done but you didn't do. But we come confidently, right, that God is good, he pursues us, he loves us. But as the Apostle John writes, if we confess our sins, we kind of acknowledge the truth, that things aren't right. We need to come before him and clean the slate afresh. So take a moment in your own heart. As we prepare to remember the death of the Lord Jesus in the Lord's Supper, just quietly, and then we'll say this prayer together. Let's pray together. Words on the screen. God of grace, you have given us Jesus, the light of the world. We love belonging to you and being yours, but we confess we still know what it means to choose darkness to cling to things that hide the brightness of your love, to turn in on ourselves and to embrace our own ways instead of yours. We offer to you now these words to express our desire for forgiveness, our longing to leave darkness behind, our heartfelt prayer to be new and our hunger to walk in your ways. Please help us to see again your glory shining in the face of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. 
For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.